What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Katherine Halpin, president and CEO of The Halpin Company. Catherine grew up in the Mad Men era of Mississippi in the 1960s, assuming a great amount of leadership responsibility at a very young age through the oversight of her four siblings and through working hands-on with clients at her father's small CPA firm. She carried this knowledge that she gained when she escaped Mississippi, her words not mine, to work with Touche Ross in Dallas, which is now part of Deloitte. Catherine believes we're born with innate and unique skill sets, and leadership, creativity, and innovation are her personal strengths. She's always been itching to channel them appropriately, and this desire led her to the significant work with which she's currently engaged. Centered around the concept of organizational-wide alignment, Catherine wrote and published Alignment for Success, bringing out the best in yourself, your teams, and your company in which she offers advice about the importance of leadership and self-diligence and how these things contribute to successful and positive business results. She presents several helpful ideas about time management and self-care and how they both have a profound effect on business and organizational efficiency. Currently, Catherine is overseeing the Halpin Company, where she focuses on dynamic team building and cementing sustainable practices into businesses. Ladies and gentlemen, Catherine Halpin. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast. Boy, it is awesome to have with us today, Catherine Halpin. Catherine, how are you? I'm great, Brian, and thank you so much for this great opportunity. So happy to be connected with you and to be here today on your podcast. Well, I love it. Thanks for joining us. You know, I want to start, Catherine, um, and maybe an interesting place. I don't know. I think it's somewhat interesting. So as I was doing my research, and you and I have had an opportunity to chat in the past, um, mm-hmm. you have a lot of titles. And I know people are not defined by their titles, so I'm not, I don't prescribe to that. But you're a coach of CEOs, of executives, a performance consultant. You're an author. You're a speaker. You're a management consultant. There's a lot of titles one could assign to you. And I'm curious, as you think about Catherine Halpin, Tell us more about who you really are, aside from these titles that have been bestowed upon you. Well, thanks, Brian, for asking that question. I'm somebody who took some early challenges in my life. I grew up in what I call the Mad Men era of Mississippi. I grew up in Mississippi, darling, in the 1960s. And I had to grow up fast because my parents were so focused on the next cocktail party and they weren't so focused on their five little children. And so I grew up very rapidly. And because I had demonstrated so much leadership in the home, one Saturday morning, my dad looked at me and he said, hey, you could come to the office with me this morning. And he had a small CPA firm in Mississippi And so as a result of those early life experiences, I had an awful lot of baggage that I took with me when I was able to escape from Mississippi 36 years ago and got into the Dallas office of what was known then as Touche Ross. It's now part of Deloitte. And so I had all this baggage and I had to work through that baggage in the most productive and most expedient way that I could. And I did. And then I took those methods 
and I became a coach in 1995, and I started training random vice president-level people in Fortune 500 companies how to embrace this concept of their, their own self-leadership. And very quickly, I saw that the real power was working at the very top. So after 9-11, I said, I'm only going to work in organizations where I can penetrate at the very top. And I started doing facilitation of processes, not so much the executive coaching. I did use my coaching skills, but I started facilitating growth and acceleration processes, not because anybody brought me in for to, as a facilitator for those processes. They brought me in because they were a new CEO and they knew they needed help building out their team or they were a longtime CEO and they wanted to be strategic as they made their exit. But in almost every case, we've been able to grow the value of their organizations by a factor of two to three, double or triple the value of a company by using my methods to build what I now call organizational-wide alignment. Well, that is a great intro. And I, I want to go back just for a moment. One of the things that you had mentioned is that you learned some really high-impact leadership lessons at an early age. And you said there were five of you growing up, so that would lead me to believe you and four siblings. That's um, right. Were you, I'm curious. Birth order is always just such a fascinating topic for yeah. me, having kids of my own. Where were you in the pecking order? Well, that's such a funny question. I was the second, but because I had this little type A personality and because my older sister was only 13 months older than me, and she really didn't want to be the oldest child, she did not uh, deal well with the chaos and the confusion. And so where I wanted to bring clarity and focus and inclusiveness and transparency, she wanted to go off and read a book as a way to cope. And so uh, we kind of switched roles. But as soon as I left at 21 and was able to escape, she stepped right into that role and helped uh, finish raising our younger siblings and has been the matriarch of the family uh, to this day. Interesting. Yeah, all the nieces and nephews would agree with me about her being the matriarch. She's such a good mother and such a good um, aunt to everybody. Well, it sounds like she had a good uh, little sister as a role model growing up then. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that, but uh, I, know not, I, I was you know, a kid, and so I wasn't as effective as I would have hoped to have been. <laughs> but I was as effective as I could be given that I was starting that process at five years old and I didn't have enough tools in my toolbox. Yeah, you know, boy, I'd love to sort of unpack that a bit and, and just dive into, you know, when did you realize that these were leadership lessons? I, I'm going to guess that clearly not as you were going through it, but uh, maybe yeah. my guess is wrong. Is this more of, a, you know, the, the gift of hindsight and looking back at your childhood and recognizing that what you were doing was just aligning your God-given gifts and talents to the situation that, that demanded you step up to the occasion? Yeah, I really think we're born with these innate skills, and they're like our thumbprint. They're just who we are. And I think uh, I'm the kind of leader who can see the big picture and who can have a vision. And that vision often plays out in my head like a movie. I can see it so clearly. And so I think at five, six, seven, eight years old, I could see very clearly, hey, things could be better around here if we just got ourselves uh, into some routines and brought a little bit more structure. <laughs> and so uh, I certainly couldn't articulate any of that then. It's definitely in hindsight. But I do think those were innate skills that I had. And then when I went into my CPA profession, the first 20 years of my career was as a CPA, that was uh, not a field that I could uh, 
excel in. I'm creative. I'm innovative. I'm always looking to do things faster, better, smarter. And so I just wasn't ever in an environment where those leadership skills could be recognized and could be channeled appropriately. So uh, it's like I had to take a step outside that profession to be able to see all that and have it all come together. Yeah, I'm curious. And, and, and I promise we're not going to spend all of our time talking about your childhood. But I think it's fascinating given that um, I know in the beginning of your book, you talk about all the Saturday mornings you had spent at your dad's CPA firm and just being a part of that and witnessing you know, all of the happenings that were going on. Um, was it that time spent that led you to pursue your early career in accounting? I mean, was it just, you were sort of modeling what you saw and didn't necessarily dig deeper? Sure. Yeah. I tell people in the, um, in the 1970s, they didn't do a lot of career counseling at the university of Southern Mississippi, (laughs) uh, especially not for women. And so I just followed in my dad's footsteps and I, uh, finished that degree and then I worked on getting my CPA and I didn't give it a second thought. It, and it was only uh, some time later in my early 30s that I realized, gosh, I don't even think I'm well suited for this work. And plus, I'm a little dyslexic with numbers. I just I kept th- th- thinking I'll be more successful. I'll have more satisfaction if I simply get to work with people and not the numbers. I was always a drag on productivity because I was, anytime I was supposed to be um, doing any kind of analytical work, I was down the hall chatting with somebody. So it wasn't just not getting my own work done. I was keeping somebody else from doing their, their work. So yeah, I'm an example of somebody eventually found their niche. Well, that's uh, well, good. Then let's uh, let's use that as a segue, and let's talk about this niche that you've developed. So, you know, to to, to kind of take us into that realm. So, you've been working with CEOs and top level leadership for a number of years now, and I'm curious. You know, it seems like the world, the business world in particular, is changing so rapidly. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear from your perspective. What you know, is there one gigantic change or maybe just some some tectonic shifts that have happened that you are seeing as a pattern over and over again in business over the past couple of years? Yes, two one bad thing and one good thing. Uh, the bad thing is the technology. It was supposed to make our lives better, but it's made our lives so much worse because now everybody's wired twenty four seven. And I believe, and and this is my experience. Because that whole time I was a CPA, I was a workaholic because guess what? My dad had been a workaholic, and so I took the good and the bad from what I learned from him. And I think when we're working 24-7, it impairs our judgment, and it impairs our ability to make good, thoughtful, long-term strategic decisions. We, everything seems urgent. Everything seems like it's critical. We get into this short-term focus. And we can't see the big picture. We can't see the forest for the trees. So I think that's been a, I think uh, we as a society have taken a step backwards because people have lost the art of being thoughtful and having a process, a discernment process to make decisions, to allocate resources, to include all the right people in those decision-making processes. So that's the, the bad thing that I've seen. And then the good thing that I've seen is the millennials. The millennials give me tremendous hope. I say when I started my career at Touche Ross in the Dallas office, I, I didn't have any values. My values were Touche Ross's values. I stood where they told me to stand. I came in. I worked the hours that were expected. I did the work that was expected. But now with the millennials, they know what their values are. 
they know they want to be out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at their children's Little League games. And they know they want to spend time in nature and they want to get exercise. So the things that I've had to work with um, clients my age in their 50s and their 60s and, um, you know, I've had to kind of like try to push an 80-pound rock up a hill trying to get them to embrace those things where the young leaders that I've had the privilege of working with, they get that and they're like, what else, what else, Catherine, what else, what else should I be working on? Because I'm going to get out of here at 3 o'clock today. So <laughs> I love that and it gives me great hope for the future because I think it's a much better perspective. Yeah, I'm curious. So, so for those leaders out there who've been around the block a number of times and are approaching, let's just call it the second half of their careers, who grew up in a time and a place where, as you, I think you said it best, your values were the values of your of your employer, and you didn't distinguish between what was most important to you and how that may or may not align with the organization. So, for those leaders out there, again, who are maybe in the second half of their career. And you're bringing this, um, this set of knowledge, this set of experiences, this confluence of things that are happening in the world and putting it into focus for them. Is it disorienting? Is it pushback? Is it, oh, that, that's just a fad? I mean, what's the reaction that you commonly hear? Well, it's shocking. Um, for, I think there's some gender differences. I think the men are more open to embracing this concept of uh, being a leader to themselves, taking time away from work so that when they come back, they have a renewed perspective, they have a broader perspective. I find sometimes with the women, I have to work harder to convince them or it takes them longer to buy in. And then I, I think the people that do it, embrace it because right away they see the power of it. Oh my gosh, that was so, so much better decision-making process because I took that time away first and then I came back and I included the right people and I established a process and we came up with a really rock-solid decision. So once people have a taste of this concept of building the alignment, they want more of it and they embrace it no matter what their age is. They, it's almost like they get addicted to it because they, they see the power of it. But it is, so that gender difference is one di distinction. And then some people are just in so much reactive mode, they can't get themselves out of that strategic mode. But I, that's, those people have been few and far between. I can count them on one hand over the last 21 years, people that I haven't been able to um, engage in using my principles. So I'm going to guess that, you know, this 21 years since the time you became a coach in 95 and all of this experience led you to write the book, uh, the title of the book, Alignment for Success, Bringing Out the Best in Yourself, Your Teams, and Your Company. And obviously it's all around this concept of organizational wide alignment. And one of the things that the book talks about is that in order to get organizational wide alignment, that the first step essentially is to get is for the leader to establish their self leadership. That's the, if I recall, that is the starting point. At least when you're working with yeah. a leader, what yeah. is when you talk about self leadership? How do you mean it? Yes. Okay. Well, now you're going to laugh out loud when you hear my definition because it's so simple. But the first one is to get out in nature. 
And if you think about all the spiritual traditions from the Sufis to the Roman Catholics, no matter what the spiritual tradition, anybody that's had a mystical experience in those traditions has had, for the most part, they've had those mystical experiences when they were in nature. So something about sitting on a rock by a stream or hiking along a path, going up a mountain, anything like that, I think helps you shift your perspective, helps you get a sense of where you fit into the universe. You're just like a little speck of dust and it puts things in perspective and it makes you want to build a bigger legacy, for instance. So I think getting in nature is really important and I encourage everybody to do that just as often as they can. The other thing that I, I know, even when I was a workaholic, I had enough awareness to know this, that the quality of my decisions and my choices the caliber of those decisions was directly correlated with how much exercise I got. When I stopped getting exercise and getting my heart rate elevated and getting those endorphins released in my brain, then my perspective became narrower and narrower and narrower. And I started to believe that everything was urgent and I was the most competent person to do everything <laughs> So that fed that workaholism. And then the third thing... And I think it's the thing that kept me from being institutionalized when I was a workaholic. <laughs> um, sure, I could have gone over the edge completely. Was what I call reserves of time, and I have an ebook on this it's, uh, on Amazon. I have eight habits that I try to get people to put in place, and they're simple, simple, simple time management, uh, life management. Self-leadership practices are not complicated at all. The first one is so simple, it's just getting places early so that you have a chance to catch your breath and think about, okay, what's the purpose of the meeting I'm getting ready to go into and what role am I going to play and what outcomes am I supposed to help drive? So it's just very fundamental things like that. But those eight habits, when you put them in place, you start to catch yourself and you start to coach yourself. And you're able to connect the dots because when a problem occurs, a challenge arises, when those things happen, there are always indicators six years, six months, six weeks, six days, six hours in advance. But because we're running from meeting to meeting or we're working with too much intensity or we're even in maniac mode, we can't connect the dots and we can't we can't pick up on those indicators and so then the problem just escalates and becomes a real challenge or a fire drill of some kind and so when people use those three principles building in the eight habits around the reserves of time and and getting out in nature on a regular basis and getting exercise on a regular basis they start to catch themselves quickly and coach themselves you know, it's interesting if I think about, at least in particular, being out in nature, which will undoubtedly shift your perspective if you're out there long enough and really soak it in and, and be present. And then the second one regarding exercise, uh, and not uh, not trying to ignore the the eight habits you were referring to, the reserves of time, but at least, you know, just for a moment, focusing on the nature piece and the exercise piece, what I hear is those are opportunities for an individual to, I think, take advantage, some think time, some reflecting time, some just, exactly. just not being tethered to a device that's device. constantly calling right. your attention and just right. it allows you to maybe just take a deep breath and, and exactly. <laughs> sort of be just for a moment. 
Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to say, Brian. And then when you do come back to your device and you check your emails or you check your text messages, you, you're refreshed and you have a broader perspective and everything's not going to seem like a crisis. You know, it's so interesting. I think, uh, and, and I'm by no means an expert. Uh, my daughters are not millennials, uh, but they are, I guess, what's referred to as this Gen Z or the the wire generation. Yeah. I know it's got lots of different names, but it's so fascinating for me and watching my daughters. Um, technology, and in particular, you know, the the smartphones, the iPads, the tablets, the computers, just the way that they are experiencing the world at such a young formative age is so drastically different than what I went through and likely what you went through. And what I wonder is, you know, you talk about uh, at the very first part of our conversation, the good and the bad, you know, the bad is that the technology uh, and the good is the millennials, uh, that they've got clarity on their values. And the bad part about technology is being, you know, it's essentially sort of shoved us into this 24-7 work mode. What's interesting to me is, uh, and I don't disagree I don't agree. I, I agree with some of it. I disagree with some of it. I can. It depends on the day. It depends on my mood. But I look at my daughters, and I'll get to what my point. Is I apologize for the babble here, but no, no, I totally uh, am interested in this because I'm fascinated. Yeah, I look at what, the, how they're growing up, and a lot of that's my responsibility and my wife, and for us to be great role models. I don't know that I even have a chance or a choice to separate them from technology. And of course. I, and no, I just wonder no. what impact that's going to have on them as they go out into the world one day and, and do whatever it is they're going to do. Mm -hmm. But there are things that you and your wife can do even now. You could uh, take them boating. You could take them hiking. You could take them places where they don't have any cell coverage. True. And go to remote places on vacation. Yep. I like to go to remote places on vacation. So then I can just freely tell my clients, gosh, I'm just not going to have self-coverage. Sorry. It's a great, uh, a, a, it's a great idea. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So I would encourage you to give the, give those girls that experience of that now. And as they mature, get into high school and get into college, continue to have those experiences and they'll see for themselves the power of that unplugged time. No doubt. No doubt. Well, let's go back. We, I, if you get me started on my girls, I'll never stop. So let's go back to, yeah. <laughs> let's go back to leadership. So, okay. you know, we, we were talking about, uh, you know, the nature the exercise, the reserves of time. Do you think one of the contributing factors of, you know, this just chaotic 24 um, seven style of work is at least from a leader's perspective, because I would imagine most of the CEOs, the C-level leaders you're working with, regardless of size of company, stage of growth, like I think there's something sort of synonymous with leadership that they that the leaders always feel like they must be the driving force of all activity all the time. Are you seeing that yeah. that's the case? Well, I have to think about that for a minute. Um, I would say... I'm not. I tend to work with more mature companies, not startups. Okay. So I think in a startup environment, an more of an entrepreneurial environment, I would totally see that. I see so many entrepreneurs out there, you know, working 24-7 and in that startup mode, they think that. But when you get to be a little bit bigger, sometimes I have to remind people that they have, you know, 100 employees or 1,500 employees, whatever they have, 
But for the most part, I think in the mature companies, people are a little bit better about seeing that they, you know, they've gotten to those levels because they're good at getting the work done through other people. Sure. Not feeling like they have to be on 24-7. They sometimes get sucked in and, you know, situations arise and they get sucked in. But for the for the most part, I would say my clients today are not, they might take a call at 9 o'clock at night with a peer because they've both been traveling and they haven't been able to connect. But for the most part, they're not working, you know, sending out emails with people's task lists on them. Gotcha. At nine o'clock at night. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. I just, uh, I think this 24 seven mentality, I, you know, I see a lot of it and I'm sure I'm guilty of it. And, uh, you know, it seems like the first thing that, uh, I will sometimes cut out of the schedule is sleep. And I know in the long right. run, heck, probably in the short run, I'm doing a heck of a lot more harm than I am good. You know, uh, Arianna Huffington wrote a – well, she's written a book recently on sleep. And, yeah, Thrive, uh, isn't it? Her, her, well, Thrive was the first one, but then she, I think there was a second one about sleep. And she says in Thrive, that's my favorite, that we don't even know the impact, the negative impact on our loss of sleep as far as our ability to make good decisions and our ability to uh, – you know, I think she's the one where I got the language. We really have impaired judgment. And it's no different than we're alcoholic and taking a drink at the work, you know, during the work day. Our judgment is impaired when we're when we're sleep deprived. You mean we're not supposed to be drinking during the day? Right, we're not supposed <laughs> to be drinking. That also will impair somebody's judgment. Right. I've always found I do my best work after a couple of shots of tequila. So. That, well, a lot of people do say that. <laughs> yeah, especially the creative, the creative work. Uh, yeah. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. That's, uh, that's awesome. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the attitude of gratitude. Yes. Talk to me about yes. this is a this is a central central notion for you. Talk to me about this attitude yeah. of gratitude. Well, it's just as hokey as it can be, but. Gratitude equals great attitude. So just today, I was in meetings from 8 to 2 with a client. At 2, I picked up my phone to check my email. I had an email from a, another client. She said, i got to go into a board meeting at 3 o'clock with a few certain board members. And I'm just, you know, as you know, not happy with those board members. And so maybe we can talk before that or maybe you can send me some words of wisdom. And I just told her, I said, try to think of each of those individual board members and what can you be grateful for about them? And it might not be anything about where they've helped build the value of your company or not been in anything big like they've contributed to you and your leadership development. Just, you know, if all you can think of is that when their parents were aging out or dying, that they were responsive to those situations and they tried to be there for their parents. Just anything at all, anything at all, the least little thing that you can be grateful for, try to get clear on that before you go into the meeting so that you can be generous with them and you can be uh, empathetic with them and you can be patient with them. It really, it shifts our, our whole way of being with people when we can be focused on where have they added value either to my company or to me or someplace in the world. And, and we get that clarity, then you can just be so much more generous. And what I didn't know when I was a CPA was that people, they really can sense 
You know, we all know about animals. I'm not an animal lover. I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's true. I'm not. So if I go to a party, if you invite me over to your home for a party with 250 people and you have one cat, that cat is going to come right up to me and try to win me over because they can sense that I don't like cats. <laughs> well, if, if a cat can sense that, just think about what people can pick up on. So if, if we have any resentments or irritations or agitations, we have to do whatever it takes, kickboxing, whatever it takes to to work through that in a healthy, productive way, and then focus on the gratitude. And even if all you have is a post-it note, just to write down on a post-it note, what has this person done to add value? And how can I get myself in the right frame of mind? And Are, um, it works think, almost every time. Do you think leaders I, I, struggle with, um, and I'm, from your experience, the leaders that you've worked with, for those that grew up in a different time in a different place where expressing appreciation or recognizing folks for things that might fall outside of the normal contribution to the company, do you find that leaders have a hard time expressing their feelings for things that might not be directly related to the profitability of an organization? Has that been your experience? Yes, certainly. But what's so ironic, I've had two clients that I've had for well over a decade. One, I don't have any more. Uh, he's 75, but I had coffee with him just a few weeks ago. He was the first person that I helped him take his company from like an $8 million company to a $25 million company. And this was in the 90s. And um, he's the person that taught me the power of working at the very top of the organization and how much impact you could have. And so he he literally got addicted to celebrating the successes. So as, as uncomfortable and as um, difficult as that was to get him oriented to that notion of celebrating the successes so he could get himself in the right mindset and get everybody else in the right mindset and build on those successes, he literally, literally got addicted. And then I have another client who's in his late 60s, and he too. So they, they, they don't have any facility when I meet him uh, to express their emotions or deal with emotional thing, topics, but they do, once you introduce them to the concept of celebrating successes, they love it because they've worked so hard for so long and they never gave themselves any credit. And so now they have a, they have a format to do that. And um, so it's been quite, that's been quite fun to see people of that era, you know, 65 to even 75 years old, really embrace that, those notions. And, um, and appreciate that. I love that. I love that. Isn't that aren't those great stories? Yeah, yes. that is great. Yes. Yeah, yes. One, of the, one of the topics that we we touched on early, but I didn't dig as deep as I wanted to. I want to talk about core values for a moment. And you know, you gave the example early on that when you worked for, forgive me, what was the name of the firm that became now part of Deloitte? Touche Ross. Touche Ross. So, when T-O-U-C-H. What is it? T-O-U what? T-O-U-C-H-E. T-O-U-C-H-E. Touche Ross. So when you were yeah. working there, you made the comment that your values were Touche Ross's values. Right. Until you figured out, wait a minute, at some point you recognize that what's core to me and the things that I believe in, the behaviors that I consistently demonstrate, maybe they're not so aligned or they're not perfectly aligned. My question is... How, what is the what is your process 
for helping a leader or just an individual figure out what are those values or behaviors that are truly the core non-negotiables? Well, I have a, a half a dozen different methods that I've used over the years to help people. But initially, uh, I wasn't really trained in this. And so I, I'd love to get people to tell me stories. I could gather so much data from their stories. And so it was like this guy from the 1990s that I was one of my very first clients. He would t I would say, how did you build this company? Or how did you get to this level of success? Or how, tell me about that client. And he would tell me those stories. And I would glean from those stories what I called his critical success factors. So I started early on doing that in very organic, intuitive way, just by getting them to tell me the stories and then me gleaning. Now I have quite a few tools and methods. Sometimes I'll have people write a letter to, um, of testimony about themselves from the perspective of their biggest champion. Who I'll say, who in your career was your biggest champion? Okay, put yourself in Bob's mindset and then write a one or two page letter of testimony um, about you and about all the value that you added. So they'll do that and then we'll dissect that letter. And now I have a tool called the core, the core value index. It takes eight minutes over the internet and I give them away freely to people for, you know, uh, on a complimentary basis. And that will tell me what their strengths are. And I don't know if you follow, um, Martin E.P. Seligman, the founder of the field of positive psychology, but uh, he says, and I knew this before, but I didn't articulate it as clearly as he has. He says, our strengths are our values in action. So uh, I have a value around transparency and inclusiveness. I want stakeholders at all levels to be included in decision-making processes to the degree that they're, they're able to be. And um, so I have some strengths around bringing disparate groups of people together and getting them, you know, to find that common, common vision, shared vision or common purpose or common commitment or just uh, common ground. If that's all we can do is just find some common ground. I love uh, I, I love that, and I love Seligman's work. Um, I remember watching a I think it was a TED Talk. Um, if it wasn't, it was one of his other presentations. And so much good uh, research has come out of the positive psychology movement. In fact, I had uh, another guest on many many months ago, Michelle Geelan, who wrote a book. Uh, called Broadcasting Happiness. And uh, she was, uh, she went through, I think it was at Penn. I think that's where Seligman is at, I think. Um, yes, I think so too. Yeah. And she was in, uh, in, in his program. So I, I love that. You oh, his very name. cool. I love his work. Very cool. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And I can see that, like you said, from my earliest um, childhood, I can see those strengths and those Values, And I used to say to my clients when I would put them through these processes to articulate what their strengths were and what their values, sometimes I would say, I can't tell the difference. I, you know, is this a noun or is it a verb? I don't know, uh, you know, what's a value and what's a strength. But uh, I knew that they were all interrelated. 
I've known that for some time, and, and I, again, just learned that from the clients. And then I don't believe we have weaknesses. I think where we get ourselves in trouble, I get myself in trouble every day, where we get ourselves in trouble is simply because we get the volume turned up too high on our strengths. Hmm. And so just a, an over-reliance of those yeah. strengths? An over-utilization. You know, like they say, an over, if we over-utilize our assets, they become a liability. And I re I see that every day. Mm, interesting. Every day. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like going back to that client from the nineties. So one of his success factors was his ability to listen and to ask good questions. And another one was um, building these great connections with his clients and customers. Well, guess what? When I started to do the organizational wide alignment work, I found out from his finance people and his, his other partners in his business that he would give away the store. He would never, he never wanted to charge enough. And so we developed some systems and processes so that he was not involved in the, in the fee setting process because he got the volume turned up too high. He valued the clients more than he valued his own firm. Interesting. That's a good example. That's a really good example. Oh yeah. I think we all have that frankly, but anybody that's any, you know, a founder of a company, is at risk for that? Or at least, you know, most of the people I know. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, uh, now the book. Uh, I want to give people an opportunity to uh, to know. I, I, I would assume they can just go to Amazon dot com. Uh, that's probably yeah. sort of the the duh. The go to um, place. Yeah, the go to place. Uh, so the book Alignment for Success: Bringing Out the Best in Yourself, Your Teams, and Your Company by Catherine Halpin. And then if you guys uh, want to learn more about Catherine and the Halpin companies, you can go to halpincompany.com and it's H-A-L-P-I-N company.com. Did I get that right, Catherine? That sure did. And oh. I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. <laughs> well, if that's all it takes to impress, then... Uh... No. <laughs> no, Halpin's been spelled a thousand different ways. And I can't tell you, Brian, how much I appreciate this opportunity and, and enjoy this. I just have so much respect for you and your whole team and the good work that you're doing over there. And I really, really, really appreciate that you're doing this podcast. I always enjoy listening to it. And so it's quite an honor to be a guest here oh, today. Well, it's it's the, you know what the only the I only exist uh, to have interesting people to chat with, and so thank you for coming on and sharing some of your work and uh, gave us an opportunity to dig a little deeper. So with that, yeah. uh, again, everybody, helpincompany.com, h a l p i n company.com, and if you want to check out the book, please do at Amazon. Again, it's called Alignment for Success bringing out the best in yourself, your teams, and your company. Catherine, what a pleasure. So good to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. I look forward to staying connected and finding ways to support you. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Okay. Thanks now. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Catherine. If you're interested in a transcribed version of the show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line, brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.